Good evening, film fans. Welcome in to the Second Day Film Podcast. It's the official podcast of the Second Day Film Club. It is Monday, April 25th, 2022. I'm Brandon Champion alongside my savants of the cinema, Evan Dean and Mike Nichols. It's good to be back talking with you guys. Uh, took a short break. Uh, Mike uh, had a good time watching the Oscars. Uh, I'm sure you didn't, but at least we got the Will Smith slap there to uh, entertain us and and, and uh, keep you entertained there for a while. So uh, how you doing, buddy? Uh, did you enjoy the, the, the show? I did not enjoy the Oscars, nor do I think I will ever enjoy the Oscars. And this year just kind of put the nail in the coffin that I don't know that it's ever going to be something I <laughs> yeah. can enjoy ever again. If nothing else, we can at least count on it for like these outrageous, like outlandish live moments that like people just all of a sudden start blowing up the internet with. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I definitely won our picks there. 20, 20 and three, I think was my record, which is the best I've ever done. Um, Ooh. so Mike has watched, uh, three, three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri was the movie that I selected for him. Steven Soderbergh joint, uh, came out a few years ago. You have not done that yet. Have you? No, but I'm looking forward to it. I've heard a lot of good things about that movie, and I, I will I will watch it. I will watch it. All right. It's good to see that you uh, keep up your promises to watch things when you make uh, deals. <laughs> Unlike some other people, Evan Dean is here. Uh, internet, it turns out they do have internet in Florida. Yeah. Um, so uh, he's joining us tonight. He's gracing us with his presence. Uh, Evan, how's it going? Good, good. Yeah, I was uh, working the night of the Oscars, and uh, – I was uh, had a, my Twitter feed up, you know, for work purposes, and all of a sudden the Will Smith slap just occupied everything on Twitter. So, uh, yeah, that was nuts. But uh, yeah, doing well, you know, got internet down here in the swamp, and uh, you know, Champ, uh, congratulations to you. You've got a little one, uh, just a uh, what a, a few weeks old now, and uh, you know, I wanted to make sure the viewers knew about it or the listeners rather knew about it in case it wasn't mentioned, you know. Last time. You mean the listeners weren't sticking around till an hour and 13 minutes of me and Mike blabbing about movies to find out that I had a kid? Uh, no, I appreciate it, buddy. Uh, yeah, it's been a wild ride. She's about a month and two weeks old now, uh, but she's healthy, growing every day. Actually just helped put her to bed right before we did this. So uh, it's definitely added a curveball uh, to the life, but you know, still making time to watch TV and movies. If anything, I have more time to watch TV and movies because I'm not leaving the house as much. So uh, I guess that's a benefit from it here. And Mike was just telling me about how busy he's been. And, you know, I'm just like, well, you sound like someone who doesn't have a newborn. <laughs> that's what you sound like. So uh, It's been a wild ride. It's been fun. But yeah, obviously still going to make time for the pod. And I'm glad that my, my wonderful wife allows me to do it because she knows I have fun talking to you guys. And, and I think we have fun doing it. So let's get into it. We got a bunch to get to. I was going to bring something up, uh, guys, before we got into this. It's a little bit of a nostalgic thing. And um, it just kind of occurred to me as I was looking at the films we're going to review tonight. One of them is Death on the Nile. Uh, Agatha Christie uh, adaptation and uh, I just got to thinking about you know Ori uh, Murder on the Orient Express came out a few years ago I think in 2017 mm -hmm. and I remembered going to the theater to see that with Sam the popcorn correspondent one of the original hosts of this show and we started this podcast in 2018 so I was like for some reason, something stuck out in my head where I remember mm. talking to Sam sitting in the theater before Murder on the Orient Express, uh, talking about how, you know, we'd be keep going to these movies on Tuesdays and we're like, let's start a podcast. And I remember it was the previews for that movie uh, where we sort of came up with the idea of the second day film podcast and actually put the wheels spinning into motion. So, uh, you know, we're going to review the Kenneth Branagh death on the Nile tonight, but his uh, murder on the Orient express was the film sort of before, uh, before that film was sort of when the podcast was born four years ago. So kind of a, a sort of fun little uh, coming full circle here as we start tonight. But I mean, we've been at this for four years now, Evan, that's pretty cool. Yeah, that's, that's wild. That's awesome. I, yeah. Time I, flies. I mean, if you look at the, if you go on, you know, iTunes and look at the uh, the entire listing of all the episodes, that's when it hits you like, holy cow, been at it for a while. And some films that seem somewhat old now I mean, Black Panther was our first featured review. And uh, boy, has there been a lot that's come out since then. So uh, it's been fun. You know, it's been uh, Mike, you've been a great ad um, popcorn correspondent. We've talked about getting him back on in a guest appearance role at some point. I'd still like to see that happen. But yeah, it's been fun. 
You know what's kind of funny is I actually remember the trailer to Murder on the Orient Express because I'm a huge uh, fan of the David Suchet Poirot series, and I, I was I definitely was a big fan of Kenneth Branagh as well. And so I remember being like very interested when there was going to be a Kenneth Branagh Poirot film. And I also just remember like how like they used the Imagine Dragons song, Make Me a Believer in that trailer. And it was just like, I was so interested to see that movie once it, when it came out, that trailer, that we're, that's a key trailer for all of us, apparently. Huh. Um, all right. So we were going to do the Batman right off the jump here, but I just brought up death on the Nile, Mike, and we're already going down the train. I feel like we should just do it. Let's just Let's go just down. The, we're going to call an audible. We're going to hop on yeah. a boat, cruise on down <laughs> the Nile. Hopefully it works out better for us than it does for some of our uh, cinematic characters there. Uh, but let's jump to it. We'll call an audible. This is a film uh, just came out in 2022. Uh, I think all four of these came out in 2022, actually. So now that we're past the sort of, uh, the Oscars that we went over last time are kind of turning the page to the films of 2022. Uh, so this is based on Agatha Christie's famous novel. It stars an ensemble cast, Tom Bateman, Annette Benning, Kenneth Branagh, Russell Brand, Ali Farzal, Don French, Gal Gadot, Army Hammer, Rose Leslie, Emma McKay, Sophia Kondo, Jennifer Saunders, and Letitia Wright. Um, obviously, it's a spy or a mystery thriller, so you're going to have an ensemble cast here. Mike, I'm sure you're more of an Agatha Christie uh, fan and maybe have more more love for the source material than I do. So I'll toss it to you first here. But first of all, I mean, you can tell Kenneth Branagh has a lot of appreciation for the source material in this movie. Um, but but what did you like about it? Well, um, this is for those who aren't familiar, I, even the people I watched it with, they, they weren't familiar that there was a like a movie before this, that this is technically a sequel film. But this film, Death on the Nile, is a sequel film to 2017. You muted yourself, Mike. I don't no, know. No, I muted I needed him on accident. I meant to mute myself. I muted Mike. Keep going. Uh-oh. Oh. <laughs> you mute me? Why you mute me? I meant to mute myself because my dog's going nuts, but I muted you instead. Oh, so sorry, hey, buddy. Ahead. Oh, I miss your dog. You start over if you want. All right. Uh, yeah, so the Oscars. I think what's crazy about the Will Smith thing is... <laughs> Not that, that far. Oh, Not that okay. far. <laughs> sorry, sorry. Uh, okay, so for those who uh, haven't seen Death on the Nile yet, I would recommend that you watch the Murder on the Orient Express film first, as this is a sequel to that. You don't have to. Like, you could just jump into this one, and if you know, hey, is a great detective that's kind of all you need to know and you'd be fine watching this. But if you, if you like the characters and you like a little um, like very glamorous murder mystery, um, go back and watch the original one, uh, Murder on the Orient Express, uh, before you watch this uh, sequel. So yes, we are back with Agatha Christie's famous sleuth, Hercule Poirot. And he is played by Kenneth Branagh, who also directed this film. And here we find Poirot is on the Nile with a bunch of people. So they're all on a boat. And yet someone does get murdered. There is a death on the Nile. And it's all it's all like this huge like conspiracies of who who did what. All these reveals about personal lives come out. Um, It's a very strong cast. I think this was a good adaptation of of the book. Um, there's, There's definitely some things that they've changed around, including some major characters who I don't think are in the book version, but they added just because they were part of the the, the first film, Murder in the Orient Express, so they bring them in here. So there is some changes from the from the book. So if you're a big Agatha Christie, like Poirot book fan, um, th- there's going to be some changes, but I think it does work well for a cinematic version and for what they're trying to do with the character. I will say, though, there's a very famous uh, thing that's attached to Poirot, which is his mustache. And in this film, we kind of see the mustache come off Poirot, which I was a little shocked that we we made Poirot so uh, we made his face so naked. But well, uh, they 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 end up uh, you know they they do that in a really purposeful and impactful way within the movie yeah. though, which is cool to see because uh, you know his his mustache coming off is sort of like him uh, you know removing his armor so to speak exactly. you know letting his guard down, which I was surprised like this movie surprised me. I didn't expect. Uh, to like it as much as I did definitely exceeded my expectations. I thought Murder, Murder on the Orient Express was, it was okay. I didn't think it was anything special. It looks like I gave it a six. Um, I haven't seen the original uh, Death on the Nile, which I think was made in the 70s. So this is also a remake in that sense. But 
this movie was definitely like more intense uh we had it was you had like this patient steamy start where you're in this you know dance hall and we get this full-on dance number and the music uh by one of our main characters there as, as she's singing really helps set the mood and bring you into this world you're in i think the music in this movie in general was pretty great with how it sort of captured the time period and sort of set the very old-fashioned feel uh, for how this movie was made because you know both in look stylistically and in production design but also in sort of the way the movie unfolds it really is just like a classic old-fashioned whodunit and instead of like avoiding that or trying to be too clever for that old sort of style of filmmaking Brana really leans into it and I think if you're yeah. gonna lean into something like that this is the place to do it yeah absolutely he has a great eye for glamour I mean everything in this movie just looks beautiful I will say though, some of the green screen and some of some of those kind of like special effects where it's clear they're not on location, that sometimes distracted a little bit. But for the most part, like everything about this movie just pops in terms of how good it looks, um, how how deeply um, just emotionally acted everything is. Like especially the beginning scene when we see these two characters dancing and. Like there's so much character work just done in the performances, even without words. And I thought that was a that was a great um, nod to not only the talent of the cast, but also to Brana as a director. Um, I will say, if anyone is like sees this and they want to see more of this kind of stuff, I really do encourage people to check out the Agatha Christie Poirot series that starred David Suchet that ran from like 1989 to 2013. They did every single Poirot case, including there's an episode of Death on the Nile which had, I think Emily Blunt is in that one. I know I've seen it because it was like, I've seen almost all of the poor episodes, but Emily Blunt's in that one um, in the place of Gal Gadot, I think. Um, so yeah, if you do want to, if you do like this and you want to check out more of the story and Agatha Christie, I'd really strongly recommend the David Suchet. Um, I think Brana does a good job like for be, having like a very um, big screen Poirot, kind of like the way like, you know, Benedict Cumberbatch is a great Sherlock Holmes and his Sherlock Holmes is very different than Robert Downey Jr.'s Sherlock Holmes. Like Downey's is more like the the TV kind of, or sorry, the, the big screen superhero Sherlock. And then Benedict Cumberbatch is a much more like methodical. There, there's a lot like more like, in-depth character development. So I think Brana's is more like the big screen Poirot. But if you like more of the in-depth mystery and the, and the much more um, maybe long-term performance, I, I highly recommend David Suchet. He's... For a lot of people, he's still the de definitive Poirot, even though I thought Brown did a fine job. Well, I mean, like with the Sherlock Holmes stuff, Guy Ritchie's just like crazy with the stylistic slow-mo stuff he does. So it's a little, you know, you can see the difference there. But I, I think in this particular case with Brown, there's a lot of skillfully, skillfully purposeful shots, whether it's spinning around, you know, the action or mm -hmm. the overhead shots or sort of coming from underwater up onto the surface. Um, and what I something I really enjoyed in this was that like the first one, um, Murder on the Orient Express, it was really just about the murder and the, the plot unfolding. In this one, I think we get like surprising like depth to Perot's character and him as like a person and not just like this legendary world famous detective because he's very like understated for a lot of the film when he's sort of just observing. Then once the crime is committed, you can sort of see the wheels start to turn in his head. And then by the end, it boils over and he just snaps into full full-on yeah, hercule man. perot action um but there's also like a lot of time spent to you know for him to have to be more vulnerable and open up we start with this lost love and then by the end that sort of comes back around there's efforts in this movie to sort of tear down the legend and peel back at hercule perot um mm -hmm. it gets knocked down a peg by rosalie who doesn't appreciate you know him investigating her um and so, like, for a film that often is obsessed with portraying, you know, his greatness and how awesome he is and how he's like this world famous super detective, I think this film also spends time sort of looking inwardly with Pro, which is not something that I expected him to be. I just expected him to be the super, you know, detective, not like this fully fleshed out character. So I appreciated this film for spending time there. Yeah. Yeah. It showed that there can be a lot of different adaptations that, like, even like stray kind of far somewhat from the source material, but can still be enjoyable. It can still work in their own way. Um, and I think he did a good job of that here. And I saw the mystery coming. I mean, it was kind of easy to, to oh, yeah. pick out, but I think that's okay. I mean, I, I think they were the obvious suspects from the start, not to spoil anything, um, but that's okay because it was so fun to watch unfold and to see him. I mean, I didn't break it down like Perot did, 
but mm-hmm. I, I figured who the people were that, you know, were the killers here, but um, you know, that's okay because it, it was more fun to just watch it unwind. It was more important for me to watch the mystery get unspun than to see the finished product. So uh, I thought yeah. that was okay within the movie. Yeah. I think if you're going in and you're going to try to guess who it is uh, you might be right, but I don't think anyone can guess how. Like this is it's very subtle and it's very complicated. The the whole plan and the whole like like maybe you maybe you have a gander of who it might be or who's motivated. There's certainly one character is you're set up to think it's going to be her for sure. Um, But then the whole how it actually happens, I don't think anyone anyone could have guessed that until the end. So Poirot does it again. Yeah, the one touch I loved was uh, right after Gal Gadot tells uh, Poirot that she's concerned about everyone on the boat and she doesn't feel safe. Uh, we cut to this like wide shot of a bird just sitting on a stump and then a crocodile just blasts it out of yeah, the air and eats it. Yeah. Sort of like, here we go, people, button up. <laughs> Shit's about to hit the fan. So I For sort sure. of love that visual cue there. Um, but overall, you know, you could, I gave it a 7.5 out of 10. Uh, yeah, docked it a little bit because some of the uh, Egyptian CGI, you can tell it's shot on a back lot. Uh, yeah. You can tell they're not on location. Um, so I did dock it a little bit there, but the, the plot was over, or the script was entertaining. Uh, Brana was great as Perot, and the cast was delightful, and uh, it was a fun journey to go on. So uh, I liked it quite a bit, and it exceeded my expectations. I did not expect to like it this much. Yeah. Uh, I give it a B. I give it a B. All right. Cool. Well, that's Death on the Nile. It's on HBO Max right now. Uh, definitely worth your time, I think, especially if you're into the mystery genre of any sort of affinity for um, Agatha Christie. It's obviously a timeless story, so worth checking out. All right, let's move on. Let's bring Evan in here uh, and talk about another film that we have all seen in two- 2022. Uh, it's called The Adam Project. It is a science fiction adventure film. Uh, it stars Ryan Reynolds, Walker Scoble, Mark Ruffalo, Jennifer Garner, Katherine Keener, and Zoe Saldana. Uh, the plot follows a pilot played by Ryan Reynolds from the future who goes back in time and encounters his younger self. Together, they must work together to save the world. Uh, so uh, fun sci-fi romp here, I would say, Evan, uh, you know, something that came out uh, a few months ago and, you know, set record streaming uh, records here on Netflix. I think it's like the fifth highest of all time. So uh, pretty well viewed, good cast. Uh, I'll watch Ryan Reynolds and just about anything, but give me an initial thought on the Adam project. Yeah, I'll start with um, maybe <laughs> what I didn't like, uh, you know, the story, it's just so unoriginal, right? And I don't know, I don't know if you guys got the sense that they were like intentionally trying to um, pay tribute to like certain films, like you get some E.T. vibes, you get some Back to the Future vibes. It seemed like they hit some of those 80s classics. Um, You know, I think that the story itself was, was, you know, it was okay. It wasn't anything we we haven't seen before. but you know what? I actually was a little surprised by that. I liked because I felt like the movie actually had a little bit of heart to it. And there were some, uh, you know, there was, it wasn't as much, you know, the story that was taking place that I think, uh, you know, impacted me. It was more of the, the relationships within the story. Um, you know, what we see between young and Adam and old Adam and his mom and his dad, um, you know, there's a lot that that's to be said in the film about how we process grief, uh, about kind of distinguishing between um, being upset or angry that something happened and being sad that something happened and how that sometimes intersects. Um, I found myself at the end actually kind of, uh, you know, um, feeling impacted by the movie. Um, so that I liked. I thought that Ryan Reynolds and the the young kid who I think it was a debut performance for uh, Walker Scoble. I thought they were good. They were fun. They, you know, for, for a kid as young as, as he is, I thought he did a good job. They had some fun banter back and forth. They, they really worked. So character wise, um, I really liked it. I thought there was some good, um, some emotion there um, with what otherwise I thought was a pretty forgettable storyline. i I'm pretty much always here for Ryan Reynolds. I mean, he's one of my favorite actors, even though he sort of does the same thing in pretty much every movie where he's <laughs> yeah, sort of yeah. the wisecracking, you know, witty sort of cool guy. Uh, you know, like it's, he's like the cool sub or something, you know, that rolls up into it. He's, he's always doing the same sort of shtick, <laughs> yeah, um, but, it, but it works for me. I don't know. Like it's, it's just so like 
charming and lovable uh, the way he goes about things and sort of his delivery, I think usually works. Um, I have to disagree with you a little bit on the emotional heart of the film. I, I, I wanted more from that. I, I, the one that worked for me was the kid and his mom and sort of how Ryan Reynolds through his conversations with her and his conversations with the kid uh, sort of, you know, realizes that he didn't get show his mom enough love or step up after, or didn't give her enough sympathy after, you know, his father died, you know, he's being selfish about that whole thing. So sort of that relationship sort of hit for me and they give each other the big hug at the end, you know, that worked for me, but the dynamic between Reynolds himself and, and Mark Ruffalo as the dad, I thought was a little bit shortchanged. I thought they could have done more with it. I thought it could have hit home a little bit better the elements that I liked were just the straight up sci-fi elements. I thought this yeah. was a competent sci-fi film. And while it wasn't really like the plot, you're right. It's hard to make time travel original, but I thought at least the sci-fi like actual elements within the movie were kind of original, like those suits that like the stormtroopers are wearing or like the, uh, the lightsaber thing that Ryan Reynolds has or the ships that are like bonded through your DNA, um, you know, and the design of those I thought looked cool. And I thought there was, I thought the action was competent. Like I was into it. Uh, well shot, exciting, and sort of unique with the with the stormtroopers on the the surfboards. So I, I just thought like the tech itself within this at least had some some uniqueness to it. That you know, from that standpoint, I thought the film worked. Okay, so I have like I have I have a theory about like the way that sci-fi, especially Netflix sci-fi, is being done now, and a lot of it is being like pushed through the lens of like et right so like stranger things was big and that was like oh it's a tribute to all things like 80 sci-fi and horror and i feel like netflix is pushing a lot of their content and, and other places too not just netflix but a lot of like the sci-fi content is now going through that kind of filter like we have to get it through the et filter let's call it where it's got to have like cute 80s nostalgia with family friendliness, but then also we need the quick witty like feel of a Marvel movie too. Right. And I think what would have worked for this movie a little bit better is if they hadn't put it through like the ET uh, filter, but if they had put it through the minority report filter, because Mm. I think that this is actually a pretty solid sci-fi like story. Yes. It's been done before, but it is really interesting to watch like disgruntled person come back in time to connect with their child self, but then they also get to see their parents. And then, and then it's the dad and the, his two sons at different stages of their, like after they've both also lost him, like there's a lot of different, like strong things that were here in the script that could have been played with, but we put it through the, okay, it's Ryan Reynolds. Let's make him be Deadpool. And let's have <laughs> all the characters have witty outraged banter that serves as a meta commentary and you know, how ridiculous their situation is. Like versus let's actually develop dig into it. Yeah, really, yeah. really interesting things. And well, I, so yeah. yeah, I think there they did have those moments of heart, but the moments almost came as a surprise, which is too bad because like the whole design setup of this story is actually set up for a lot of heart. And instead yeah, it's like true. it's got this random connection of okay, there's this kind of moment with the mom, but then she's not really the focus of the story because because it's the two, you know, Adams, but then it's, no, it's Adam and his dad, but then it's the other Adam and his dad, but then it's, and it's like, he's having catch with both of them at the, the end in front of him. Again, <laughs> having a catch CGI for yeah. it, which is like, why, why, why couldn't they just do a real cabin? Why are we doing this? So, I did. It's kind of like, I, kind of like how interstellar uses time travel. That was a really yeah. effective emotional way yeah. to go about it, but yeah. Go ahead, Evan. Well, yeah. I did feel like they, you're right. I did feel like they tried to pack a little too much in here. I guess I was, you know, now that I think about it, I guess I was a little surprised by some of the emotion that I felt too, because I guess I didn't see it coming, especially with Ryan Reynolds. You just, it's just not something that I see in a lot of his films. Um, but I think you're right in terms of, you're right in distinguishing between like the uniqueness of the story relationally versus the uniqueness of the story and the sci-fi element. I think like the sci-fi has been played out time travel has been played out. That's why I mentioned both E.T. and um, Back to the Future. I felt like they were kind of pulling from the 80s there. But mm-hmm. you're right. I think that they're, you know, like the I guess the shell of the story felt really unoriginal. But maybe within that, uh, to your point, there was some opportunities to to build a little bit more on relationships. But there was a lot going on. I mean, he also had his former lover and that she got her 15 minutes 
you know, so uh, maybe they tried to pack too many in and they could have focused on, uh, uh, you know, fewer relationships and maybe that would have been better. Well, and Zoe Saldana is like, you know, she shows up and we can tell that there's this huge, you know, relationship they're married and that's the whole reason for this mission. But then, you know, she's gone and she's sacrificing yeah. herself and it's like, we didn't really have time to, to really care about you as much as we should. But, um, and I also don't, I don't think you want to, as far as like, you know, plot devices and whatnot, you don't want to think about the time travel too hard because it's like <laughs> yeah. when we watched Avengers Endgame, if you or infinity war, if you started thinking about the time travel stuff, it's not going to add up. It's a world where time travel exists. Just accept it. Uh, you know, and, and you move on. But um, I, I do think there was, I thought this was entertaining enough to watch. I had fun what going on this ride. I mean, I didn't feel like I was wasting my time. Uh, I thought it was competently shot. And like I said, I liked the action and uh, you know, I thought there was some good stuff going on. I do think there was a little bit of missed opportunity to go deeper though. Yeah, yeah. I, I do think overall it's a competent, enjoyable movie. There's Woody dialogue. I laughed at a couple of the lines, you know. I thought we had uh, especially a good performance from that kid. Uh, the, the new kid. The yeah. one. Walter. Yeah, Wal- Walker, Walker Scoble. Yeah. yeah, good on that kid. I thought he did a good job. If, that, yep. if this was his first movie, well done to him. Uh, he held his own against, you know, Ryan Reynolds, Mark Ruffalo, Jennifer Garner, uh, you know, Zoe Saldana, like he did a good job. Um, so the villain I think- didn't do it yeah. either, though. No. The villain, Catherine Keener, uh, poorly mm. written, rushed. Uh, I don't know. It, 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 she wasn't menacing enough for me. I will say, though, I did love the villain death. I thought that was really cool. And yeah, we can be, well, the plot, oh, the bullet was going too fast for the gravity, whatever. It, I love <laughs> the idea that she's going <laughs> to choose to shoot them, but that her, her own machine breaking draws the bullet away and kills her own younger self, which then implodes her. Like I thought that was a very fitting and very well done villain. End that. It's also yeah. interesting to think about how uh, technology, how like when you, you know, how we'd be better off without time travel. You know, you, you think about like a breakthrough technology like that and you're like, Oh, well that would definitely help our society and we'd be better off with that. Um, but we mm. see in this sort of how, you know, perhaps that could be our downfall. And I think that, you know, people like us who are, using tech and interacting with tech. I mean, we live in a world where Elon Musk is buying Twitter today. Like people who are doing that sort of stuff and interact with it are always sort of, and have watched black mirror stuff like that are thinking about like tech revolting on us. Um, But I think it is an interesting idea that you could have this breakthrough discovery. Like Mark Ruffalo loses his shit when he finds out that he's the godfather of time travel, but to find out that that's actually a bad thing, um, maybe not too hard for us to understand, but I think it's an interesting idea. Yeah. Yeah. Again, I think this had a lot of good bones to it. I just think it probably sat in development hell for too long. And then yeah, a bunch of different Tom Cruise was going to be in this. There you go. He was my, (laughs) what movie was he in? Minority Report is what I'm saying. So tomorrow. So he's a sci-fi guy. I, I think had this had a little bit of a different like emphasis placed on like the development of the characters and uh, yeah, I mean, the writing was very witty and funny, but I'm like, and I, th- I don't like the fact that this is a whole movie about people meeting different levels of themselves. And anytime there's a heartfelt moment, I feel surprised. Like this is set up to th- this whole thing, have a lot of heart in it. Why are we only mm-hmm. like being like, wow, I'm surprised this had heart. Like, yeah, I mean, like, I- that's actually almost an insult to the movie. Like, so, but yeah, it's, I, I mean, I guess it was enjoyable. It was an enjoyable. I guess film. I just, you know, it's, it's Ryan Reynolds, right? I think that casting move explains a lot. You know, I just think I you're mean right. they did a superhero landing in the movie, and the kid even says, "Ah, oh, superhero landing," and it's like, okay, <laughs> we know you're just doing. I just feel like right Ryan Reynolds is such a sarcastic, cynical bastard that it's hard to sort of take him at his word when he's you know being sincere or heartfelt. Sometimes, you know, to yeah. Point. So I mean, I, like, yeah, I guess I feel like that sometimes. I guess in the end, like this isn't really fair to Netflix because Netflix is producing some Oscar winning work, but it felt like a straight to Netflix version of a better film, um, you know? So, um, but no, I mean, like I said, there were some moments and whether you were surprised by them or not, I liked them. I, I, I thought that th- they did surprise me. Um, I gave it a What'd six and a it? half. Yeah. Six and a Same. half was, was what I rolled with. So I'll, give it, a, I'll give it a B minus. All right. So, uh, yeah, I mean, it's a sci-fi movie. There's some interesting 
uh, you know, it's fun to watch. It's a blockbuster, good one to watch with the family. Uh, just some missed opportunities to dig a little bit deeper into some really interesting ideas, I think is the consensus here from the Second Day Film Podcast. Uh, let's move on. Let's keep it going here on April 25th, 2022. Uh, good to see you guys, uh, Evan. The internet is back there. I'm, I'm, I was we were getting worried that you were we were, you were not going to be able to join us, or you were going to have to climb on top of your TV station to broadcast with us here tonight. Yeah, I mean, uh, I mean, you know, it's they have to run the you know cables in the swamp down here. You got to avoid the gators and the the murky water and all that. Yeah, Mike, I got to send you this picture. I sent him a picture of one of the reserves down there in Florida, and there is literally like 45 gators within like a half mile radius. It's insane. You can just see all their eyeballs. Uh, I'll send it to you. I'll send it to the group. It's pretty gnarly. But uh, anyways, back to the movie. Speaking of gnarly uh, and something ominous and eyes in the dark, uh, the Batman came out this year. I thought you were going to say turning red. (laughs) (laughs) That has the glowing red eyes. (laughs) Okay. Okay. Well, yeah, I guess there's no glowing red eyes in Batman, but he definitely is lurking in the shadows. And Mike, this is one of the scariest Batmans I think we've ever seen put on screen. Uh, This is directed by Matt Reeves. It stars uh, Robert Pattinson as Bruce Wayne. He's come a long way from Robert Pattinson. Or, uh, yeah, from... uh, from our guy Edward Cullen, he's come a long ways uh, in in the Lighthouse and these artsy movies, and now he's the Batman. Zoe Kravitz, Paul Dano, Jeffrey Wright, John Turturro, Peter Sarsgaard, Andy Serkis, and Colin Farrell star alongside. Um, this film is set. Uh, the Batman's been in business about two years when the Riddler, a sadistic serial killer, begins murdering key political figures in Gotham. Batman is forced to investigate the city's hidden corruption and question his family's involvement. Evan, we'll try and speak in vague terms here, I guess, because I don't really want to spoil the Batman for you. But uh, well, I mean, well, I guess we should ask you: Are you going to watch this movie anytime? I soon, actually, or? I actually do want to see this one, and I. I'll just say that, you know, I was not um, I was not motivated to see any of the Ben Affleck stuff. What I did see of that DC, that version of the DC universe was not impressed by that. But I've heard some good things about this film, uh, other than the fact that it's ridiculously long. But I plan on seeing it. So, yes, we'll try to be some terms. Big. I think we can review it without uh, sort of, you know, spoiling too much of it, Mike. Um, but, you know, right away. We're like literally moments and yeah, the runtime is long, three hours long. Um, and I guess, Mike, we can talk about whether or not it felt like three hours long watching this. But right away, uh, literally with the about the first scene of this movie, we're no we know we're in for a darker Batman than we've really seen before. Yes. Sorry, I'm trying ahead, not to spo- I'm trying not to I'm trying not to spoil uh, anything for Evan. Oh, so, come yeah, on. This movie. Uh, there is a bad guy, and I don't want to give away who it is, but I just said it's the Riddler. Riddles, and he's basically the Zodiac killer. Um, yeah, this is uh, this is a very, I think, beautifully shot Batman. I think of all the Batman movies, this might be the best looking one. Um, Matt Reeves is an incredible director with a great eye. I loved the way he used the camera work in this to even have a little grime around the edges. The way he did lighting in this. Um, I think this was definitely showed a lot of strength in Matt Reeves's direction um, as a, as a filmmaker. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, is it, is it my personal favorite Batman? I don't know, but it's definitely a good one. Yeah. I think that Robert Pattinson did a solid job as Batman. I have mixed feelings about his Bruce Wayne, but I don't know that's fully on him, but whatever. Uh, he did a good job as Batman. I thought the real scene stealer though was Zoe Kravitz. She crushed it as Catwoman. Um, she was great. And mm-hmm. um, yeah, this this Batman definitely, uh, you know, it gives you like a very grimy, uh, colorful, uh, just very mysterious Gotham City. Um, you know, there's a lot of rain on everything. Uh, oh, it rains every day in Gotham. Batman comes it's out like of the, yeah, it's just up rain, Seattle. It's just rain and red. And the sunset. sun never shines. <laughs> it's rain <laughs> and sun. red sunsets. That's rain and red. Blah, blah, blah. Rain and red sunsets. That's actually hard to say ten times fast. Anyway, um, but yeah, I this mean, is definitely the best like ambience or I don't know world building feel I think in a Batman movie. 
I mean, it's 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 dripping with noir elements. I mean, it's very mm-hmm. grim. Yeah. It's gritty. It plays up those sort of grimy aspects of Batman. You know, it felt very street level, like in the shit downright brutal sort of Batman. Um, and what yeah. this movie I think does better than any Batman we've ever seen before is it plays up the detective part of Batman, you know, world's greatest detective. It's always been an aspect of Batman. It was a great aspect of the animated series, Batman. Mm-hmm. And, you know, being a detective is arguably his biggest superpower, but I feel like that aspect of him often gets played downplayed or neglected in favor of his super strength or his gadgets or his suave, you know, womanizer version is of Bruce Wayne. But this one really is a detective story. It plays up those elements. It feels like it's channeling Batman, the animated series, except on a souped up level of that sort of noir gritty griminess. And it also plays up the fear aspects of Batman where, I mean, if you remember Matt, Mike, the Batman animated series, you know, he's always yelling like, I am vengeance. I am the night, <laughs> you know, and it sort of yeah. it plays up those sort of Batman is here to scare the bad guys of Gotham. Yeah, he's here to obviously he goes through an arc in this movie and sort of learns that he needs to go beyond that. But when we first meet the Batman in this world, he is like a fierce, terrifying, lurking in the shadows. Quite literally, when that bat signal goes up in the air, it's a warning to the bad guys. Um, and it's and he tells that, and that, he tells us that. Right, he does through his He's, narration. We, but we've got like, the noir narration of I'm Batman telling you the story. When right, see but I like that. Sky, I like that we're playing up this fear. <laughs> It's so cheesy. Yeah, <laughs> it's a little cheesy. It's so bad. Mike's not doing a good a good Batman. Uh, cross Mike <laughs> off the Batman audition list. Uh, it's more like that I could do Batman. I'm vengeance. That's more what he's like. Vengeance. <laughs> Uh, but I why, like why does he insist like on got... talking differently than his normal voice? <laughs> because he doesn't want to be caught as Bruce Wayne. But uh, it's more like, you know, that's specifically in the movie we, you know, where they really play up that sort of fear, like, holy shit, here comes a train to kill me is uh, when, when the penguin's car gets flipped and he sort of the booming score comes on and it's sort of yeah. Batman approaching him. Uh, the score, by the way, Michael uh, Giacchino. I think Excellent. the score of this is a huge strong point of the movie and sort of amplifying the terror. Yeah, I'm weirdly enough thinking about the score. Like I'm hearing it in my head just as we talk about it. You can't not see the poster and look at this and not hear the score. Boom, 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 boom. It's booming, yeah. <laughs> it's good. It's like pulsating. Yeah, it plays yeah. sort of with the aspects of Batman being the true bringer of justice, you know, it really plays into that. Um, you know, how did you feel about, you mentioned the performances. We've got Colin Farrell as the penguin in this. We've got Paul Dano as the Riddler in this. And we've got, uh, you know, the anti-hero with Zoe, or Zoe Kravitz playing Catwoman, Selena Kyle. Uh, the Riddler's the main villain in this. Paul Dano, kind of a weirdo uh, to begin with, plays a lot of weirdos on screen. Uh, hey. He's really leaning into the. He does. He does. He well, does. He, you don't need he to call him a weirdo. You don't need to call him a weirdo. I'm sorry, Paul. If yeah. you're listening, Mike is still afraid to offend. Uh, um, Alan, who would never listen. Colin to Farrell was the, the penguin. That's he doesn't even look uh, like. Wow. Oh, he's almost unrecognizable. I think he does great in this. I, I really yeah. liked him. Um, I like the Catwoman. Paul Dano, it's like, Mike, how often, like, I feel like every Batman movie now, we've got people trying to, like, one-up each other with having a crazy villain, basically, ever since Heath Ledger's Joker. I mean, how how much is too crazy for a Batman villain? Well, I don't know. I mean, I, I, it's, here's the thing about, like, adapting these characters, right? You can kind of do whatever you want with them. Like, they're just these comic book characters, and they get you know, adapted through all these different lenses and eras and are in artist perceptions of them. So this artist perception of the Riddler is that he doesn't wear, you know, green Riddler based clothing. He like tapes a mask on his face and wears like a yeah. jacket. And that wouldn't have worked for this movie at all. No, but I don't even know if that works for this movie. So I'm like, okay, well, what? I don't know. I, I wasn't crazy about the look of this Riddler. But I did like, you know, what he did. Like, I do like, you know, the the seriousness of, okay, the bombs with the riddles on them and that kind of thing. I thought that was... Maniacal laughing. Yeah, it was very, uh, you know, it was very intense. Um, but yeah, with this Riddler, I I think Paul Dano's a great actor. I just didn't really feel like this Riddler seemed like he amounted to much in the end. Like, 
I, he wasn't I don't even there for the final showdown. Exactly. Yeah, he just kind of gives himself in, which is like, oh, they're doing the thing again where the villain gives himself to, to to really get in deeper and mess things up more. But then he just stays there, and he's got a bunch of little like, I don't know, Riddler and on followers just like blowing things, like trying to shoot people for him for someone who's not even corrupt. Like it's, I don't know. Like the the ending was a little bit anticlimactic for me, also just because. You know the whole oh no they're gonna let the water in okay well that's actually gonna hurt poor people not the rich people so i don't know why the riddler's <laughs> whole thing is i'm getting back at the rich by flooding yeah. the homeless down like what like it just didn't like i thought the climax with the riddler was a little anti-climactic and anti like riddly even like it, i don't know if riddly's not a word sorry but it didn't really feel like all that big of a riddle like and, and even his whole motivation was a little I don't know. Uh, just, We've seen uh, it before. Target the rich. We've seen that before. I mean, it's like, but and if you think though. of like Batman, he doesn't really target the rich. Like he targets the elite. The elite, we should say. You know, the mayor, the DA, the the police commissioner. I mean, it's it's. I, I agree. Like compared to other showdowns in Batman, you know, even with Bane or with the with Heath Ledger's Joker, uh, or even with Raisha Ghoul in the in Batman Begins. I mean, it's just. It, I agree. The climax doesn't you know sound as or it doesn't feel as huge. But then again, the Riddler, you know, going face to face with Batman would stand no choice. So he kind of has to use cronies um, to do it. But I did appreciate that this wasn't an origin story. You know, he's already been at it for two years. It's more of a middle stanza where he sort of has been at it for a while and he needs to, he's like struggling with, am I even making a difference? Should I keep doing this? Which is something we've seen in Batman and Spider-Man and all sorts of, you know, uh, superhero stories. But it's almost like this is sort of the middle stanza where he learns he needs to evolve. Um, you know, he, he learns that he's already like this vengeance fear, you know, tool. Um, but I think he learns, he even says, I need to become more than that. You know, along with the fear, he also needs to be, you know, like sort of a beacon of hope for Gotham that when people see the bat signal, they don't need to just think about fear. They need to think about, Oh, Batman's here on our side. Um, and I sort of, so I sort of like that development, yeah, uh, of too. the Batman character that that's something cool that I mean we've seen at times but um, this definitely feels sort of like uh, he's evolving more so than becoming you know in, in mm-hmm. this so I, I, I appreciate it because we don't need to see another Batman origin story we just saw it yeah I think Batman has a good character arc in this film and you know like you said like there's a lot of this that's already been done in the Nolan films like I don't know. I, there was that. That was one thing I didn't really understand about a lot of the films. We're like, oh, we finally get a dark Batman that's realistic, and I'm like, that was literally the Christopher Nolan movies. We thought we did. Like that's yeah. those were like um, they were, but, but now it's like, but now it's like this feels even because like I already felt that like where like Christopher <laughs> Nolan. The reason people love those movies is because they took them to a more like realistic plane and got rid of the comic book camp uh, that was in like the Nicholson films or definitely the. Uh, maybe not the Tim Burton one, but there was definitely a comic book, you know, fun house nature to Burton's the, films. Yeah, the Schumacher and the Schumacher films. one was a disaster. But like, uh, you know, that was the smart move then. But it's like, we thought those movies were dark, but like this even takes it to an even darker shade of gray, which I didn't think was possible. It's almost like it's almost like what Zack Snyder was trying to do, except the, that Matt Reeves did it right. <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah, I, I think if anything, this shows us that like, this really showcased to me how great of a director Matt Reeves is. I think um, he did a wonderful job. I wasn't crazy about everything in this Batman universe. Like, for example, I didn't care for the Alfred Bruce relationship. I thought he was kind of a dick to Alfred a lot. And like, well, he's a dick to him in the comics too. It's like, yeah, but there should at least be some strong emotional connection. And this Not one didn't much either. Yeah, this one didn't have it. Like Alfred, oh, I don't want to spoil anything, but like the second Alfred is proven to be you know, okay, all Bruce does is, like, berate him and just be cruel to him, and it's like, uh, okay, like, good morning would, would have been better than what you are saying now, and I don't know, it just didn't, he didn't really feel like a very, I don't know, I've always felt like there's, and this is one thing I think the Nolan films did right, is I kind of always think there's three men. There's, there's, the, there's the playboy Bruce Wayne, there's, there's the real Bruce Wayne, and then there's Batman. And I don't know this one. I just didn't really see who the Bruce Wayne versions were that really kind of connected uh, with who I. The version was emo, Mike. 
<laughs> yeah, I wasn't crazy about it, to be honest. Um, and I get, you know, they're doing a different thing. That's fine. There's nothing wrong with them doing this. It just wasn't my personal... Um, it isn't, it isn't what attracts me to the story of, or character of Batman. I, I just thought it was kind of emo Bruce. Didn't really... It didn't to be really fair, fit. Bruce isn't on screen that much. There's really not a lot of just Bruce Wayne. And the, I mean, half the time we just see him in the cave or in the yeah. house looking but all sad. Yeah, but oh. when he's in the Batman costume and doing his Batman thing, I thought Pattinson did a really good job. He was a good detective. Mm-hmm. He had a good presence, the way he carried himself. Uh, I, d- I did think the voice worked for this Batman. Um, I thought the fact that it was clear he was building a lot of his own stuff, like the car. Um, this was kind of the first Batmobile where it really felt like if someone just ordered parts and was <laughs> put it together, <laughs> yeah, put it together, they, this is what they could come out with. So it's not exactly the most epic or <laughs> you know, the most, it's not exactly the best looking Batmobile, but uh, you know, I, th- I think it worked for this Batman and that's fine. It feels, gra- it feels yeah. raw. You know, yeah. kind of like Robert Pattinson's Batman. And I think the fight scenes feel raw in this too. Uh, you yeah, feel right in the action uh, with sort of this, you know, every hit, we feel it. The chase between Peng- when he's chasing Penguin, I-, I think was maybe my favorite sequence of the whole thing. Um, and then obviously fighting in the sort of rafters of Gotham Square Garden is also cool. Um, so, I mean, the action is nailed. I think the- uh, thematically there's some interesting stuff going on that sort of expands on the Batman character and also sort of, reaches into the origins and the roots of the world's greatest detective. So I appreciated that finally being brought to the forefront. The score is great in this, uh, you know, three hours long, probably didn't need to be three hours long. I did find myself looking at my watch a couple times, but uh, you know, for a three hour movie, I did enjoy it. So I wouldn't say that it really is a, a detriment to the film, but probably unnecessary. Um, I gave this film a uh, eight out of 10. I liked it quite a bit or 8.5 out of 10. Sorry. Liked it quite a bit. Definitely one of my favorite. I don't think it's going to top The Dark Knight just because that movie was so iconic. And I think it just hit everything pitch perfect. And Heath Ledger's performance is just unmatched in that. Um, but I might put it right after that. I'm not, I'm not, it'll be up there for me. I was annoyed that they threw the Joker cameo in this movie, to be honest, because it was it's such a major character and it's so unnecessary that you even need to see like what they were kind of trying to show of him we and just threw the spoiler thing out the window evan sorry <laughs> it's not even a it don't worry evan it's not even part of the story which is why it didn't need to be in the movie but this is what uh, you get for not watching movies <laughs> well but there's also did you watch the deleted scene of how they did the joker in this movie i didn't no but it's, we're, we got a, we got 15 minutes till we push an hour here, so we still got a whole yeah. movie. So I guess my my just thought, guys, would just be like, I'm. Do you feel a little old, like inundated with Batman movies? Like, yeah. what did it what did it do that was better than you I know, think the we Nolan just explained films? a lot of that, didn't well, we? Well, you did, you did. But if it's like you've got this, like you've got Nolan, who just you know those those three films were incredible. And then everything else has been unable to live up to that. Is it necessary? It does though. I think this is better than The Dark Knight Rises and Batman Begins. I, I don't know if it's better than, better than I don't know if it's better than Batman Begins. That's like a perfect origin story movie. But this is also not an origin story movie, so it doesn't have to be. This could pick up right after Batman Begins. I think I think this kind of like if if you do too much contrast compared to other movies, you kind of lose whatever you're meant yeah. to enjoy from a new movie. I will just say this, Evan good writing is good writing and and a good looking movie is a good looking movie no matter like if you've already you know it's it's like i don't know what's a what's a good it's okay well you can still enjoy the dark knight and enjoy tim uh batman returns it's like but to answer what evan's question both good writing and good looking movies so yeah but to answer his question i would say what does this do differently plays up the detective aspects better than any Batman I've ever seen. And okay. from a, from a visual standpoint, it's a Batman we haven't ever seen. Uh, I mean, it's, it's and from a tonal shift. I don't think it's a Batman ever we've ever seen. This is a dark movie. Like it could be bordering on an R. Well, uh, don't you think uh, that, that, you know, Nolan's films were dark. They were, but this is almost like, like Tim Burton, Tim Burton's films were dark. It, Tim Burton's was dark, but it but it always felt like there was like this fun camp to it, like with the penguin actually looking like, I a, mean, like a penguin. I mean, I guess dressed I mean, in latex and dancing around. Like I, mean, it, I think camp camp would be George Clooney. 
that Batman. Yeah, but it's like you can do camp bad. There's good camp and bad camp. Yeah, I guess bad camp true. is the Joel Schumacher shit with like, Val Kilmer, Mister Freeze's sh- minions fighting on ice skates. Was but that that's Val bad Kilmer? camp? Evan, bad. I, I would say like the the horror dial of like what counts as a horror film or like the intensity you feel like with with noises or with the way cameras are working in a horror film like this dial like when it's Tim Burton like the campiness is there's like not as much horror um even though it has a very gothic look shall we say but yeah. then you, you watch Christopher Nolan movie okay like maybe there's a little bit more of a, a thriller with, with like oh a, a kind of psychotic character like Heath Ledger's Joker there's a realism but to then Nolan. yeah this this movie yeah. the horror dial that's true that's this, true the horror dial is turned even farther this feels a okay. little bit creepier and, yeah this is a horror yeah. more this is definitely plays up more horror elements it also goes for that realism like I like that Batman like isn't perfect in this like when he you know jumps off the building he like has an awful terrible looking crash landing like any normal human would and sometimes he gets punched and hit um so he's i like that this batman is more like not perfect he's more just like like mike said it's like a guy has a lair in his garage and he built a batmobile and he has these toys and he goes out and fights crime you know it just feels like a really sort of uh just kind of stripped down version it's stripped down but then like the the production design is amped way up so and it's kind of a and this batman has to put on black eyeliner so that you can yeah. see like darkness when you look at his eyes because the mask doesn't cover the whole thing um all right well we got to move on we got we got about 10 minutes till an hour here but what well, did you give it a grade mike a minus all right cool so i mean worth seeing it's getting good reviews i think it's warranted for the most part i agree that you know super superhero movies but evan that's a battle we're going to be losing like the batman's never going to go away he's an iconic character yeah. in pop culture as long as there's money to be made, I mean, look at the box office for this. It's it's huge. Oh, I know. Uh, even in I, COVID times, almost seven hundred and sixty million dollars at the box office. So it's going to keep happening. But I get your concerns. I mean, it's got. I mean, the mystery element and amping up the horror. I mean, that's interesting to me. I think I, I'll I'll want to watch it. So we'll see. All right. Well, let's move on to the last of our films we're going to review here today from Batman to an adorable red panda in the (laughs) Disney Pixar universe. Uh, It's the latest film in the Disney Pixar universe. It's called Turning Red. It's directed by Domi Shi, who I don't know if you guys know this. It's her feature film debut, but she also directed um, the short called Bao, which is the one with the dumplings. I don't know if you guys remember that, but it's super cute. A little Pixar short that aired before. Um, The film is uh stars the voices of rosalie cheng sandra oh abba morse hien park uh orian lee wei ching ho and james hong uh it is set in toronto in 2002 it follows may lin may lee a 13 year old chinese canadian student who due to hereditary curse transforms into a giant red panda when she expresses any strong emotion um, guys, this is Pixar's latest. You know, we like to talk about Pixar movies here. We're definitely all huge Pixar fans. Uh, I like this movie quite a bit. It's a cute little coming of age tale. Uh, have to have to admit that I was like Malin's mom at the beginning. I really, when I first saw this movie and sort of thought about the premise, I really thought this was going to be about periods. And I was sitting here thinking like the three of us grown ass men having to talk about periods and the onset of periods. And I'm like, man, we could really use a female on this pod right now to sort of bring some context context to this. Um, But luckily they shoot that down right away. You know, that doesn't, that's what she thinks is happening. That's not what's happening. It ends up being more, I guess, broad. You could say the themes of this, but uh, I'll toss it to you, Evan. How did you feel about turning red? Well, there is the bathroom scene that, you know, kind of acknowledges part of it, but it's just more broad. It's just more broad than about period. Um, You know, first off animation is great. Um, it reminded me of Luca in that it's like this Wallace and Gromit style of characters. Like they have large rounded teeth and like, I don't know. Uh, it reminded me of Luca a lot in, the, in kind of that animation style. Uh, you know, I think Pixar representation is really important to them. And we get an Asian American family here with a lot of Asian American culture, Asian, Asian culture. You're right. I'm sorry. It was Toronto, Asian Canadian. Um, But we get we get the Asian culture in it. And, uh, you know, this was uh, a bit nostalgic even for me, because, look, I'm not uh, a female, but she's growing up at the same time period when all of us grew up. Mm -hmm. And there was a lot of fun uh, 
in identifying that time period. Um, there's like the Digimon, like necklace, like animated toys, boy bands were just the rage back in the late nineties, early two thousands when this was taking place. Uh, and I, and I watched it with my wife, Ash, and we just like, we just really enjoyed like recognizing some of those, uh, just some of those kind of, um, you know, nods to that time period and kids who grew up, you know, like we did in the late nineties, early two thousands. It's a very Um, specific time period. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, again, for us, it was perfect. You know, it almost, it almost like hit, hit our age specifically. Um, And then, yeah, the story, I mean, I really enjoyed it. I thought that um, to your point, like they do broaden it out. There's a lot uh, to be um, explored with that relationship between, you know, mom and daughter, mom and, you know, the mom and her mom. um, And it's a bit odd. It's different. Right. Um, You know, I don't know that it would be like a, like a, did this hit the box office? Do you guys know? Or was it straight it was to Disney straight Plus? To, it was a Disney Plus yeah. original. I went it kind of, it. I don't know why I kind of felt like that. Maybe because they knew they were trying something a little bit different with the storyline. But all in all, yeah, I liked it quite a bit. I think, I, I think, Mike, and I'll toss to you a second. But I, I, I think what the film is really about is just sort of like being okay with what makes you different. You know, obviously it's a magical transformation that's going on in the movie. But it's pretty clearly a metaphor for like going through personal changes and you could even broaden it in this movie with the Chinese uh, stuff to, uh, you know, embracing cultural changes and sort of things that happen through generations that are, especially with a, someone who's an immigrant. I mean, obviously I'm not an immigrant, so I don't know, but you, you know, these, these are, you can see the themes with this. So I think it's really just about, you know, being, being, a, not being afraid to push the min- limits. I think I saw a review that said, you know, it's about letting your freak flag fl- fly and being proud of it and, embracing originality so i mean I, I i thought those films were cool and obviously for a uh, you know a younger audience or family film those are all themes that any kid you know is going through puberty or dealing with changes this is sort of a relatable way to put it on screen yeah i definitely think this movie did a good job of taking you know the idea of the red panda um and turning it into more than like you know like you said like there was a lot of oh this movie's all about like a girl having her period and like it's a lot more than that. And I don't like, I think it's really just about puberty and it's about growing up and, and turning into something that is not what everyone expects, including like your own family. And um, there's a lot of different, like, you know, themes that you could, you could say that the Panda represents, but like overall it is about her becoming who she wants to be um, and her choosing that. And uh, I think there was a lot of good themes in the movie. I, I definitely was really impressed by the animation and just like all the different anime styles that they drew from to make it just very like it just popped and like there was all these little things like that draw, that drew your attention or even just moments when it's with her friends and all of a sudden the different animation styles of like them as they imagine themselves or little just cutouts of them like doing their music like it was it was just really fun it was very creative I think it really um, honored a lot of Pixar's like you know commitment to doing something that's a little bit more creatively different and and, and has a lot of good human storytelling in it um, I thought like it was also just very funny there was a lot of moments I found myself laughing at and even even just the whole thing at the end where it's like her mom is coming to the concert as a giant red panda to like scold her for sneaking like I was like this whole this is this is funny like this it just kind of made me laugh like the whole you know setup of it but um her mom's gotta chill bro her mom's gotta chill out like like freaking creeping outside the school like that was hilarious though you gotta chill lady you're gonna kill your daughter man this is high school yeah like how (laughs) embarrassing it was for one when her mom like finds the the little drawings that she did of her and a boy and then goes and confronts at the store with her daughter shows the thing i was like Oh, like I had such, and then again, where she's like there at the school, she's like, I have your damn <laughs> so, Like, just all the yeah, way she was terrible. This, girl, this poor girl gets embarrassed, and then it turns into a big fight of, you know what, mom? I'm the one who wanted to come to that concert. Look, I'm doing the dance, I'm gyrating. <laughs> I'm gyrating. Such a funny, it was just such it a funny, funny, like, 
really like oh man like you really felt for that daughter when the mom would do some of those things like i was like oh this it was it was good writing um it really captured like the cringe like oh parents and their kids like taking those steps into puberty um so but yeah, i like, saw i read that writing. uh i read that some parents are mad because they read the film as it's okay to disobey your parents and i just feel like that's a really shallow reading of what this film was about it's not about disobey your parents it's about you know push back at your parents sometimes especially if it's you know you're fighting for who you are as a person you know like don't be ashamed of what makes you different from your parents don't be ashamed of what makes you different from maybe what is a a generational tradition in your family you know i think that's kind of more what they're looking at more so than it's okay to tell your parents to fuck off (laughs) <laughs> yeah. I just I just yeah. don't understand how you can re- look at this movie and that's what you take out of it. People did that with Harry Potter too. They said that like, oh, Harry Potter is all about teaching kids they don't have to listen to teachers and they can, and that all parents are bad because the Dursleys represent parents, so parents are evil. And it's like, you know, people will find whatever they want to find if it's if it's going to be something negative. You know, I do think it would be uh, a, a good movie for parents and you know and like those young teens to watch together you know i mean i feel like it was it was uh definitely for them and like could could spark some good conversations where would you guys put it in in sort of the pixar pantheon i i was thinking about it i think it's somewhere like between like 50 there's been 20 24 25 26 pixar films now i i'd probably have it somewhere between like 15 and 18 i was looking at it as i probably have like all I'd have the first three Toy Stories, Finding Nemo, Inside Out, Up, Wally, Coco. It probably both Incredibles, maybe Brave. Uh, I'd ha- maybe A Bug's Life would be ahead of it. So I'd probably have it like in not the Soul to or on. There's there's twenty there's no, been about twenty five Pixar movies apparently. So um, I just yeah, like fifteen. Right now. Yeah, this was oh, this was official. This was officially Pixar's twenty fifth film that they did for like full full movie so i'm just kind of rolling through i'd put it i think i would put this one like i wouldn't put it in like the top 10 but i'd put it like near near the near the top of the middle i think it was i think it was one of the better ones i i enjoyed this movie um, yeah without without like looking at it further i i think it'd probably be uh, somewhere where champ had just kind of rattling it off i think i could find at least a dozen better than it um even like soul recently i really liked so yeah i mean they're, they're all they're it's such a high bar right i mean i, I think I, I gave it i think a 7.5 or a seven i have a seven, a seven on i have a seven on imdb but but i can't do the halves on that and this was a while ago that i watched this so um but yeah in terms of the the pixar uh films i mean yeah it's not one that i'm gonna that i'm personally going to um remember maybe for look maybe for moms and daughters yeah to be fair we're not the target audience yeah (laughs) it's a great movie for moms and daughters it's getting i mean really strong reviews just generally across the board so for moms and daughters yeah it might be up there what uh what grade would you give it mike for me and evan are both at a seven i give it an a minus i thought i i did think sometimes the like the resolution of the story like the whole final battle like it was just kind of like a big like giant pandas fight, like arguing about going to a concert like and that's it didn't really feel that climactic um well and pixar's even, been even doing if, this thing lately with disney where like the villains aren't really villains you know they're more like anti-heroes that have a flaw they've yeah. been doing this a lot lately you know where there's not really a true antagonist there's more just like this push pushback yeah, and that's fine. That's that's how, in some ways, real life is. Like usually, it's just people who all think they're trying to do their best, but their interests can conflict, and it creates conflict. You know, mm-hmm. so um, I, I yeah, I didn't. I it just didn't feel like if it almost felt like the humor was more like it, that. That was louder than the heartfeltness of that moment, which it felt like it should have been. And even at the end, the fact that she's like, well, "I choose to be both the panda and me." I wasn't really sure how that works just because how did she control it? Like, because it shows her getting angry as the panda. And then realizing, Oh no. Like, like this, this thing starts taking over you if you, if you don't control it long enough. So I was wondering how, how is she going to handle 
controlling this supernatural kind of beast that can come out of her. Like everyone else in the family, they, they kept these things locked in these vessels. But I, yeah, she's like, no, I use both and it's all just fine. It's like, oh, is that, that just kind of like an easy out? But well, you know. yeah, but I think the idea at the end is that like now that she doesn't have this pressure from her family mm-hmm. and they're more embracing her for, you know, how what she's chosen to do as she's yeah. gone, growing into womanhood that, you know, now that the pressures are off and everyone's more open minded that maybe she can, you know, control her you know, pressures more, you know, because we saw that she was yeah. able to control it some when she thought about her friends in the movie. So yeah. um, that supports that support system is still all locked in. So, um, yeah. but we're at like an hour and four minutes now, so we should, we should probably wrap this up unless anyone wants to sneak one last thought in there, but I think we've covered it pretty good. You know, yeah, it's a movie that we want to see solid animation uh, as always with Pixar and, and thematically definitely a good family film, I think for, for people to watch. So as Pixar usually nails it like that. So uh, mm-hmm. let's see anything else before we get out of here. Uh, yeah, I, I give it an A minus and I, and it's fine that she chooses to like, you know, accept both. I, I just thought it could have been maybe plotted a little bit better, but whatever. It's, it's fine. It's a good movie. A minus. The last word from Mike Nichols, ladies and gentlemen, we appreciate it. Evan, glad the internet held out for you. Uh, Mike, good to see you as always. It's it's good to talk to film with you guys. Uh, we'll discuss what we're going to do on the next one, but uh, until next time, we appreciate everyone for listening. If you want to check out our Facebook page, Second Day Film Podcast, our old episodes are on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud. Uh, appreciate your support. We always love talking shops. So for Mike Nichols, Evan Dean, I'm Brandon hey. Champion. Thank you once again for listening to the Second Day Film Podcast. I'm trying to do an outro here. Uh, Can I say one last we'll thing? Can I say one last thing? Can I say one last thing? <laughs> what mike i don't think it was right for will smith to hit chris rock at the (laughs) hour thank you for that thank you for that moral lesson so for evan dean the bane of my existence mike nichols i'm brandon champion thank you for listening to the second day film podcast we'll talk to you next time and we'll see you